Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Puatic. Welcome to the Ref Club, Ask the Experts. I am Adam Puatic, and the person chiding me for my intro is Aaron Cameron. <laughs> Our guest today is Daryl Bellwood, also of First National. Where the topics we're going to cover today are will easily be Daryl's most defining characteristics as a lender. He is best known for working with some of the largest borrowers in the country, that'd be both public and private, and he is also the undisputed king of Ottawa lending. So those are the two topics we're going to get into. The bulk of our conversation will be around large borrower strategies for acquisition and finance and how they view the market, which is much different from the kind of mid-level players. And we'll end off with Ottawa commentary because... Daryl knows every block like the back of his hand. I've driven the market with him numerous times, and you would not believe what's stored in his brain. So let's crack it open and see what's inside. Daryl, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. And it's a pleasure to be here. And Adam, I would actually say it's disputed king of Ottawa, not undisputed. (laughs) I like your modesty, Daryl. So to start off, and let's get into your background. Let's hear why it would be disputed, but let's get into your background about how you got into real estate and lending and how you got to where you are now. Well, my story starts about 22, 23 years ago when I originally graduated from U of T. I worked with some other financial institutions. And back at the time, I had put my resume on a website called Workopolis. And First National had called me in for an interview. and. At the time, I was looking to join the commercial side of the business, and I had got called in for an interview on the single-family side, and I politely had let them know that I was looking for work on the commercial side of the business, and I thought that was that. We shook hands, and I moved on, and about three weeks later, First National called to bring me in for another interview on the commercial side, and the rest is history. So I started on the servicing side of the business. Worked my way from the servicing side into the CMBS market at one point, and then I joined forces with a couple of different originators in in our office today. One of who is still there, uh, Drew McCauley, and another uh, Jim Scrivens, who has since retired. So I had joined with those guys, and then I worked with Jim for geez about twelve, thirteen years before he decided to retire, and after that. Uh, I went out on my own as an originator. Drew is also my mentor, Daryl, so we share that in common. I do want to point out, just so that everybody can follow along, Daryl is actually Adam's mentor. So if you feel that Adam is just gushing over Daryl, now you know why, (laughs) because Adam basically has learned everything about real estate from Daryl. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it's also kind of true. So anyway, let's keep moving. Daryl, let's go back. Just when you joined First National, you started servicing and so did I. You started to work under Drew, so did I. Under different circumstances, I think I followed you sort of 10 or 12 years later. Like We were not a very big company at the time. What's it been like kind of growing up as First National has grown up? You know what? It honestly has been amazing. It really is a family-type atmosphere. You're still working. A lot of the people that uh, I worked with so early on in my career, all of them were at my wedding. And so I probably had a larger First National contingent than I did, uh, to some extent, aunts and uncles, uh, because I've got a large extended family as well. So it was kind of an extension of a first national party for my wedding, but it, it's been great. The people are amazing. It's the one thing that I think there's a lot of people with tenure 
at First National. And it, it's basically because of the atmosphere and what Maury and Stephen have created from day one. It still remains true today. And those guys are still active in the business, which makes it a very flat structure. And everybody they brought on since I first started uh, have fit well within the culture. So it, it's been great. I mean, just for context, Adam, before you go, I mean, I, Garrett, Darrell, do you know what your employee number is? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, it's in the 70s. I want to say like 79. What year did you start? I started in March of 2001. So everybody can appreciate. So March 2001, so you're basically 20 years in. You were employee number 79. I think we're now at sort of thirteen or 1,400 employees across the country. I'm pretty sure when you started, it was probably about a billion dollars under management, maybe a couple billion dollars AUM total between commercial and single family. Less. We were about $750 million. And I told Adam the story before where it was, we hit a billion, we had a party. We hit a $2 billion, we had another party. We hit $3 billion, we had another party. So we decided to wait until we hit $5 billion to have another party. But then the billions just, it kept growing. And I think they got tired of all these parties or they were just too expensive. So we definitely don't party as much as we used to. Yeah. You know, and I got to, for context, and people that are regular watchers, viewers, listeners, even though Adam and I work for First National, we don't often talk about its history. So let's just do that for 30 seconds, right? You joined when it was a couple billion under admin. Now I think we're at 120 or 130 billion under admin. You know, commercials doing 9 billion of new mortgages every year. Single families, I think they're like 20 billion of new mortgages every year. And it's still Maury and Stephen. Maury Todd's and Stephen Smith, as you indicated, the two founders who are still active in the business, still our president and, I mean, more as, I guess, executive vice president, but he's still engaged. You know, it doesn't necessarily get celebrated. We don't talk about it. We try to almost avoid it just because we don't want it to be a first national, you know, advertisement. But it is really one of those incredible Canadian business success stories. And you've been frontline witnessing it from the very beginning. Employee number 70, and now we got 1,400. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I, it truly is. I, you know, when I started, we were all packed uh, at 100 University. I think that was the third office space that the company had taken since its inception in the late 80s. And I remember when I started, we had maybe five empty cubicles and we were all on where commercial is located now, which is the North Tower on the seventh floor, uh, 100. And when we started to grow, those cubicles got snatched up pretty quick. And then they had to start putting people in the kitchen of all places to work. So we were bulging at the seams and eventually we were able to get uh, more space and expand. And today, you know, we've got three or four different floors at 100 University and now moving to a new office when the pandemic is over. So the growth has been tremendous and it's just been amazing to be a part of. I can guarantee that HR did not want you to share that you're putting employees in the kitchen, but we'll, we'll ignore that part uh, for now. <laughs> well, lunches were always really interesting, Adam. <laughs> yeah, you definitely work through that one if your desk is located beside the fridge. So let's talk about your business today then. You know, obviously you've been at it for a long time, built up a very large book. So describe the, you know, the profile type of who you're working with, where you're working and the types of loans you're doing. I would honestly say I'm one of the originators because of my tenure that I'm countrywide in terms of transactions that I work in with a very specific focus on the Ottawa market because I've been going to that market for so long. I had the luxury that my predecessor before me and Jim, 
he had developed a really good relationship network in the Ottawa area. And as Jim started to wind down his career and brought me on, I was able to go up to Ottawa with him and meet these same relationships in the network and start to solidify my position there within the existing network. Ottawa is a small, big city, I call it. And it's great to be on the ground there. It's to me, one of the nicest cities in Canada. And you've got a lot of great borrowers there who are actively engaged in real estate. And so with the Ottawa focus that I work on, plus a lot of the public companies, I probably work with three or four different public companies right now that uh, are very active across Canada and some large privates as well. It gives me a real unique view into the Canadian real estate market. And I would say most of my focus, which is just based on how my career has gone, has been more of a focus on multifamily than retail and office and industrial. I do do some work in that field, but primarily my book is catered around the multi-res space because a lot of the large borrowers that I deal with, you know, business trips, I've been out to Newfoundland on business trips. I've been up to none of it on business trips and, and out to Vancouver. So I've really been able to explore Canada at its best from a business perspective, and I love working coast to coast. It's awesome. Daryl, let's talk about some of the clients that you work with. You know, just in general, you have a book of sort of private in, of investors and public investors, and so they have different motivations, different strategies, different restrictions, quite frankly, on the way that their sort of fiduciary duties are to other shareholders or family members or however the structure may be. Before you answer, let's do this. I know there's a lot of people watching live, but it is June 15th, I think. And we're kind of coming out of COVID. We're hearing more and more stories about people with their second vaccination. Ontario and the rest of the country are releasing restrictions. So we're entering like a hopefully what feels like the exit of the pandemic. And there is a ton of capital, pent up capital, not, not just in your and my savings accounts, more yours than mine, probably. But there's also a ton of corporate savings accounts that are sitting there with liquidity. How are your borrowers entering this phase? And what are they looking at as far as trying to deploy that capital in a very liquid market? And maybe if you can, I know this is kind of a convoluted question, but try to draw the distinctions between what your private borrowers how are they approaching the market versus how your public borrowers are approaching the new market? Yeah, I listen, you just hit it. There's a lot of capital and liquidity chasing limited supply, which has primarily been that way since the first market crash back in, or sorry, I shouldn't say the first, but the market crashed back in 2008 when the asset-backed commercial paper markets uh, disappeared. So The capital since then has really started to chase the limited supply, which has really drove cap rates down. It's compressed them incredibly. There's such a demand for apartment product now. I've never seen it like this, to be honest with you. In in early stages of my career, it was active, but not this active. Apartments have always been one of the most stable asset classes in the commercial side of the business. And I think what has really started or intensified that type of focus is the fact that there was a lot of fear when the pandemic first started that tenants weren't going to pay the rents and you'd have a ton of defaults because uh, cash flow was going to dry up during early stages of the pandemic. That simply just didn't happen. And a lot of Canadian borrowers and property owners, they put their blood, sweat and tears into their buildings and 
they really develop what the tenants would call their home. And so a lot of the tenants, it was white noise to some extent about not paying rent. So a lot of the tenants continued to pay. And so that liquidity that a lot of borrowers had built up in their accounts, whereas they might have thought they had to utilize it to cover vacancies or any reductions in cash flow, they haven't had to do it. Now that capital can be redeployed on properties that are being sold or they can target other properties to purchase that maybe might be off market, for example. And so it really has kept the private and the public's active in this market, even though you thought it might have slowed down to some extent. Well, let's talk about their acquisition strategies now or, or what they're buying for. When you started in the industry, they're probably buying buildings at a 10 cap and then just watch the cash flow <laughs> spew away for a couple of decades. But in the current environment, if you're trying to buy in one of the, you know, the top five cities, it's a pretty tight cap rate straight across the board, cheap financing notwithstanding. So can you describe what the privates are buying for and then also the publics because they do have more considerations regarding distributions and shorter term investment horizons? You know, the privates, they buy to expand their portfolios, but also distributions and cash flow and having a good investment. The rates of return on real estate typically are higher than what you'll find in other markets or investments. And so real estate's always been attractive that way. The barriers to entry back when I started in the business were a lot higher. Yes, caps were higher, but the amount of capital within the marketplace and savings that people had weren't as robust as they are today. And and there's a lot of cash in the system. So there's a lot of people with lots of money in their bank accounts. And so they can sort of enter the markets. And the way the privates will do it is they're more diligent from a preservation of capital per se, because the money's coming from their own bank accounts. And so they maybe might be a little bit more cautious or conservative when they're looking at things. Whereas the public companies are looking for good sound investments that they can purchase for unit holders to increase the distributions. So it truly is two different perspectives that way that they have. The public guys, they're looking for value add situations just like the privates are, but it's the difference between what you can pay on a property depending on what your cost of capital is versus what the return on the property will be at day one when they purchase it versus both of them have unique structures where they can put money into the capital items and increase rents per se. Whereas the public guys too can absorb a little bit of vacancy because they've got such large, large portfolios. So if there is vacancy on buildings, then they're not too concerned about it because they've got the cash flow and the balance sheet that they can support vacancy. Whereas the privates, uh, they might be a little bit smaller and they might not be able to do that. Well, let's talk, let's explore that a little bit more, Daryl. Like who is winning that battle? You know, I hear stories at times where there are private investors where they're not even looking at cap rates. They don't even know how to calculate an ROI. They're just saying, this is for my kids and my grandkids. And so if it's a two cap or a six cap, I don't care. This feels like a good investment versus public who have a little bit more you know, scrutiny, I guess, because they've got shareholders kind of reviewing it. However, as you indicate, may have more capital, may have a different cost of capital structure, may be able to look at a property from a value add perspective a little bit differently. Do you think it kind of all washes out to being even like everybody at the table on a bidding process kind of ends up around the same number or... Is one right now, particularly in an incredibly liquid market, 
maybe outbidding or having a better perspective or a perspective that allows them to win more often than not? Yeah, there's definitely, when everyone's at the table, everyone's value or offer price, let's say, is dependent on how they run their model. And everyone has a different model. Everyone has a different cap rate. Everybody has a different projection on what sort of capex is needed in a property. Different companies have different capex programs, if you will. And so, you know, some companies will walk in and they will redo the roof, the boiler or the HVAC systems. They'll redo balconies, windows, all the major components right off the bat. And then they'll focus on the suite upgrades and turn over the units and try to maximize the rents to market. Others will do units first and then do the other items and see if there's more turnover so they can do units first before they look at the common areas. At the end of the day, even the privates and the publics are what I would say are within a range of one another. But where the differentiators may lie is that somebody with a larger portfolio might have more buildings within that area. So if they're bidding on a property, it might be a bit more accretive to them to add that building and absorb it into their portfolio because they've got more buildings located close by. The institutional properties or the investment grade properties, what I call them, would start maybe give or take a few units around 80, 80 plus. And then you've got a different tier of buyer for those large buildings. And there's a lot of privately held buildings in Canada where it's been passed down from generation to generation and current generation doesn't want to run, say, one or two rental buildings. And so those may get snatched up by the very large privates or the public companies because they can offer an attractive price to the vendor and they can structure it in such a way that it's tax effective for the seller. Well, uh, Daryl, can you elaborate on that a little more? Like the tomorrow, a decent sized portfolio comes to market and it attracts all kinds of large borrowers. You know, this is obviously be, you know, we're talking a 500 unit portfolio hits the market. When they are structuring their offers, can you describe how it'd be advantageous, you know, for that vendor to give them an edge in the way that they're trying to win the uh, portfolio? From that perspective, I think the very large privates would offer a price and maximize the price that they're willing to pay. Whereas maybe a public company could structure it a little bit different and maybe offer a combination of cash only or cash and units in the public entity or 100% units. And there's different tax implications for each of those scenarios for a vendor. I'm not a tax accountant or tax lawyer, so I can't uh, speak to what those tax advantages are. But, you know, for example, if somebody's selling a building to a public company and they're taking all units back, the publicly traded entity, then they don't have to pay capital gains until I believe they sell those units. And so that's one advantage that maybe the public companies could have over a private company. I just want to elaborate just to make sure what you're saying is that often the public companies can offer shares instead of a cash or, you know, whatever debt. And so if the vendor takes those shares, they may earn the benefit of the increase in those share prices. When they sell, presumably they sell, they only have to pay capital gains or whatever the purchase price was, and they earn the upside. Does that, that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and clearly, so privates, like even... Privates can't do that. No, exactly. Because the privates have a more rigid structure in terms of who their owners are. And so 
the public companies, that, that's definitely advantage to them when they're looking at different assets for sure. So maybe offering the same price or even a discounted price, but the incentive of owning shares and enjoying the appreciation of those shares over a certain period of time may be more attractive to the vendor. You kind of touched on CapEx structures and the ability to invest and maybe just talk about, again, on the public versus private, how there's sort of that FFO nuance to the publics, particularly the REITs, and how using CapEx allows them to kind of adjust their investment strategies. I would say private and public are very similar to the extent that they know they have to reinvest into their properties. And there hasn't been a large construction boom on the rental side in Canada since the mid-90s or early 90s when the NDPs effectively killed the rental market through rent controls. But now you're starting to see more and more new construction come to the marketplace. But there's still that aspect of the multi-res market where it's the 50s, 60s, 70s built construction. And so the buyers know they've got to put some money into CapEx in order to maintain the economic and the useful life of the property. And so these guys have large groups or departments within the company that focus on CapEx and making sure that they spend the money they need to on the properties and on the units, on the major components. And so by doing so, they can maximize the rental income that they achieve as well and get those rents to market. And in some cases, maybe lead the market when it comes to the rates that they're willing to offer on some of their units because the buildings are clean, they're well kept, the units would almost be condo quality in a lot of the buildings. And so people want to live there. You know, there, our renter pool within this country is tiered, but for the most part, people simply want good, affordable, nice units that they can remain in for a long period of time. Because frankly put, in the major cities, home ownership is almost unachievable nowadays. Yeah, I know. I use an acronym, which I always regret doing. FFO is funds from operations. Oh, yes. My bad. That was my bad. I threw that out there. And shameless plug, if you want to learn more about that, how that implicates <laughs> REITs and why it's so important, you can go and listen to Adam and my podcast. The, there's a Mark Rothschild episode where he describes all of the nitty gritty on what that FFO means, how it gets calculated, the implications between repairs and maintenance and capital expenditures, and how there's some nuance to REIT share valuations as a result of the funds from operations sort of metric and, and formula. And we are going to cover the Ottawa market for the last sort of 10, 15 minutes. But before we go there, let's just finish off sort of this conversation between public and private. I guess I have two different directions to go, Daryl, and you pick which one. There's sort of site intensification because a lot of your clients, a lot of the major apartment owners across the country have a ton of land, right? I mean, they've got existing structures on there, but there's an incredible opportunity for development and site intensification where the land is quote unquote free. Maybe just to talk about what you're seeing in that particular space right now, where in such a liquid market, it's hard to win new bids. And so are you seeing a transition to some of your clients aren't necessarily traditionally developers, but I think just by market forces, they're being sort of forced that direction. Yeah, that's a good point. For the most part, a lot of the large portfolios, you know, there are aspects of 
existing properties where there is additional land that's either vacant or maybe it's got a surface parking or something or a parkade on it. And so one of the things you can look at is intensifying those areas in order to add more units because ultimately in any portfolio, the more units you have, the more you grow your portfolio through cash flow and the funds. There is a lot of trend towards that is intensifying existing sites. And a lot of uh, clients I work with, they do have, you know, anywhere from a thousand to 10,000 projected units, if you will, on some of these intensification areas. I guess what's further compounded, whether they decide to build right now on those or not, is for the most part, construction costs. Construction costs rose a few years ago to the point where they sort of slowed down. And then just in light of some of the cross-border disputes and the tariffs that were implemented, labor costs have gone up, timber costs have gone up, and concrete's gone up. So a lot of the major, major construction expenses have started to increase. And I've heard numbers of anywhere between 25 to 30% increase. And so unless rents are high enough to absorb that increase, uh, some of these projected intensification sites could be stalled for a few years while things get back to normal after the pandemic. But when you're running your pro forma on any construction site, you want to make sure that the projected cash flows are correct. Any drop in rent could have a profound impact on the ability to build, even though the land is free. Yeah, the market is definitely shifting underfoot in COVID and prior We've got a little more time to spend on the large borrower discussion, and we are a panel of three lenders, and we've only really touched on debt here and there. Uh, so I wouldn't mind just uh, going over the debt strategies you're employing with your clients, specifically the REITs, because I know that they have a little more uh, rigidity in terms of the, their borrowing. On the private side, obviously, I guess there it might be a little more dispersed, the strategies. But if you can kind of highlight the two, uh, you know, how they're deploying debt strategies in the current market right now to uh, remain competitive? I would say everyone's different to that, guys. Like, There's really no one-size-fits-all strategy to any type of borrower. The publics may go, they would borrow, say, up to 75% of lending value might be the most extreme that they would borrow. But it really depends on what the funds are being used for as well. Some borrowers will go full 75%. Of lending value. Others will limit it to, say, 65. And there's nuances between all of them, especially if you're using CMHC versus conventional financing. I've got a number of customers that I work with where their leverage is limited to 65% or less of CMHC value. And that's just, it's more because of conservatism around borrowing. If the market ever changed and cap rates went up, they sleep better at night knowing that if they lost 20% of the value on the property overnight, they're not underwater with any of their debt ratios. So in the past, when we came out of the asset-backed commercial paper drop-in market, the intent was to borrow up to 75% of lending value, which historically has always been different than, say, acquisition price or market value, if you will, especially on a refinance of a property. And so when we came out of that at 75%, it might have really been, say, 65 or 70% of market value, if you will. And so it was almost like a forced equity retention in the property in the short term. 
now that cap rates have continued to compress and values have shot up, some of the borrowers don't need as many funds. They've got really, really healthy balance sheets. Their portfolios remain at, say, between 98 and 100% occupied. And so their cash flow is incredibly robust. So the idea is to take some leverage to maximize returns, but maybe not over lever or go right to the maximum leverage that they can take. And it's almost like, to some extent, forced equity savings in case uh, things ever changed. I mean, it's interesting, right, that the market is so healthy coming out of a pandemic where we anticipated such incredible sort of economic, I don't want to say destruction, but challenges. And yet it seems to be just going to ride into a roaring 20s, knock on wood, that that's true. And it feels anyway, based on our conversations, that commercial real estate is going to be no exception to that. Daryl, let's transition to auto. We've got about 10, 15 minutes left. It's your hood. Why don't we just talk about what's transpiring in the auto market in general? The development is going on is incredible. I was there. I, I lose track of time now, probably a couple of years ago now. But the number of developments and high rises going up all over the city, there's, there, it really is a thriving real estate community. Ottawa is one of the best markets in the country. It has sort of flown under the radar over the last, say, 10 to 20 years. So it was always known as a government town, so maybe a little bit more sleepy. But Ottawa isn't just a government town anymore. It's got a great tech sector. It, Shopify's head office is, is in Ottawa, and them alone have created a very robust tech sector. Corel and Mitel have always been there. And so Amazon's there. I think one of the driverless cars, one of their testing facilities is in Ottawa as well. And so it really is a tale of two different cities uh, 20 years ago versus today. And uh, real estate has just been incredibly active. It's a very conservative market when it comes to real estate. A lot of property owners don't borrow to the max that they can get. A lot of them will keep equity under their properties and still remain conservative there. The rental stock to me is one of the best in the country. You could sit at a table in Ottawa and competitors are all sitting together talking about their business and what they're doing, what they're seeing. You know, obviously they keep some things to themselves, but there's a lot of the apartment owners are friends up in the city. And so I think that pushes each of them to keep really nice properties and keep everything in good shape because it's some of the best rental stock in that market. There's a lot going on downtown as well. There's a lot of proposed rental units within that market that will come to market over the next, say, two to three years and even longer. But those units will be absorbed. Ottawa is such a livable and workable city. You're on the Ottawa River. You're on the Rideau Canal. Summertime, it's one of the nicest cities in Canada. Maybe not so in January, but you know, Florida's uh, very close by or you can get somewhere warm fairly quickly from Ottawa as well. So it's a really nice city and there's a lot of money spent on infrastructure. So I think as it grows as well, it will be very attractive to people moving out of some of the more traditional larger cities that have attracted people and people will tend to migrate towards Ottawa. So you did highlight there that, you know, Ottawa is you know, much more than, than a government city. But I do want to ask you about that aspect. You know, part of the reason that people want to invest in markets that have that heavy government presence is, is a bit of a safety feature. In the event of a downturn, that their real estate will fare better than those markets that do not have that presence. So how did Ottawa fare during COVID? This could be all asset classes. 
did it deliver on the promise that those uh, high-paying government jobs buoyed the market and protected people's investment from uh, downside? You know, I would say yes, Adam. A lot of the government employees were able to work from home. Even though Ottawa isn't necessarily as just a government town anymore, our federal capital is Ottawa. And so the parliament buildings aren't going anywhere. And so over time, I think what you'll see is additional industries add. It's got one of the largest uh, health networks in Ottawa as well. So there was a little bit of effect from COVID in the downtown sector, but that was more of a result from the universities having to close up. You know, Ottawa U is right downtown and Sandy Hill area is one of the biggest student rental areas in that city in Canada, if you will, very similar to the McGill ghetto in Montreal. And so Sandy Hill vacancy rates shot up and tenants moved back home with their parents because they didn't need to go to class. Carleton's there, you've got Algonquin College. So a lot of the student areas were affected, but for the most part, the Glebe, Westboro, Mechanicsville, Hintonburg, a lot of those up and coming areas that have been gentrified over the last 10 years, they remained unaffected by COVID. You know, Ottawa wasn't hit as hard in terms of a numbers base from the pandemic as what you would have seen in Toronto or Vancouver or some of the other areas within the country. And so, you know, the lockdowns uh, weren't as robust in the initial stages in places like Ottawa because uh, there simply weren't as many cases. Maybe, Daryl, one of the things that always kind of comes up when we talk about Ottawa is just sort of some of the land that's contentious. Maybe, do you have an update on what's going on with the Breton Flats? Like, I know there's a ton of news and media around that. Where are we now? Like, that's one of the most sort of highly desirable pieces of land outside of Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver? Yeah, I would say it's um, the NCC still has to make a decision, but eventually it'll get redeveloped. You know, I don't know if you saw the headline uh, a little while ago, but CLV Group had been working with uh, Trinity Development Groups in, in an area close to La Breton Flats to bring some rental units there. And the project sort of switched scope. Now it'll be a mixture of rental and condo within that area. And so, you know, it's one stage to redeveloping La Breton Flats. You've also got, I think it's called ZB, which is in that market as well, which is in between Gatineau and Ottawa. That's uh, ongoing development that'll be uh, highly successful when it's completed. And it'll bring uh, sort of a different type community into that area as well, where there'll be sort of live work, there'll be retail, there'll be rental, there'll be condo. And so there's a lot going on in that sector. There's been so many proposals for La Breton Flats over the years that I think the city and parliament is just looking at getting the right development in that area and not just simply allowing any development to take place, which they'll want something to complement that sector of the city and the Ottawa River that goes right by there. Yeah, you mentioned, Daryl, the tight-knit community of real estate people in Ottawa. And I do agree. I mean, it's funny. I've been to, you know, very small towns in Canada where there's kind of three people that just trade real estate back and forth and that's it. And Ottawa has a bit of that vibe, although obviously on a much larger scale that there's a, you know, a handful of, you know, serious players that are doing the bulk of the uh, transactions. But Ottawa is, uh, you know, a top destination uh, in Canada for real estate investment. So how does that intermixing work of a tight real estate community where a lot of people are uh, trading properties and they don't hit the market 
and the large players that you know, are trying to get national coverage, trying to get into the Ottawa market. How does that tension play out? I don't think there's a lot of tension, if you will. A lot of the large players would know the people in Ottawa as well, Adam. So I think there's discussions had maybe partnering up. Some of the competitors within the city might say, let's partner on this deal and maybe we can make something work and we can land the asset. But I don't think there's any tension per se, if you will, if some of the public guys started to enter into the Ottawa market. I wouldn't say they wouldn't welcome them. Everyone's trying to find those limited assets. And so it's understandable that some of the national players will eventually make their way into Ottawa as a little big city. You know, obviously, the people that are on the ground there owning the real estate would like first crack at it. But, you know, in today's market and with some of the prices that things are trading at, I just don't know if that's feasible or realistic anymore. So we've got about five minutes left here, Daryl, or maybe even less than that. So let's talk about your forward-looking vision for Ottawa. I mean, you've obviously been lending for a while, but you've got a lot of runway left in your lending career. So what do you see happening in that market five years from now, 10 years from now? Growth, growth, growth. Ottawa, they project it'll be, I think it was 1.2 million or more people within Ottawa over the course of the next two to three years. And so for the longest time, it was around seven to 800,000 people. And then when you factor in across the river in the Gatineau area, you get an even bigger municipality. There's the light rail transits being developed and it'll eventually go all the way into Gatineau as well and connect the two cities. The growth there will be tremendous on both sides of the river. And so you will see the population get much, much larger within that area over the next five to 10 years for sure. The real estate will follow suit. Ottawa hasn't had, if you will, an industrial boom in that market for a long time. A lot of the product is older and shorter ceiling heights. So you don't have as great industrial property within that market, but that's slowly changing and you'll see more development in that sector of the market as well. Yeah, we didn't even touch on Gatineau, but I know there's a ton of development and and growth going on in Gatineau as well. While a totally separate city, kind of the same city, right? Because they're really kind of side by side. And I appreciate your comment about the LRT connecting the two, which will just make them even more interconnected. I have a friend that lives in Gatineau, works in Ottawa, and I think you're going to see more and more of that. They won't be as segregated as they historically have been. Daryl, we got to wrap. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to do this. Really enjoyed the conversation, your insights on both the private and public in Ottawa. Again, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciated it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I kind of digest the conversation we just had with Daryl Bellwood. You know, Adam, I got I to gotta ask, like, that must have just been so special for you, having your mentor on the podcast, having the opportunity to ask him those questions. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I even noticed just the way the, the conversation flowed just through familiarity. It was, I thought it was a real, real yeah. nice change. And then not the interviewing strangers is not a, you know, a blessing as well, but to know somebody's business that well and be able to ask questions is very cool. Adam, Adam just missed the fact that I called Daryl his mentor. I think Daryl's listening right now, <laughs> laughing about that. 
<laughs> and, and I mean, maybe it's funny. I mean, this is the after show is always where you and I kind of, I always say, let our hair down and, and be relaxed. <laughs> Daryl is like one of our favorite people at, at First National, offense to all the other people at First National. <laughs> but those that know us and know Daryl will understand why that is. And, and it is awesome to have him on the podcast and just get an opportunity to see him kind of strut his stuff. Because I mean, the guy's brilliant, knows the industry inside and out, gets a lot of, I don't know, <laughs> what's the nice way to say it, gets a lot of flack from us occasionally at times, but rightfully so, is is just brilliant and, and knows his stuff. It really was really was cool to kind of see him go through what, what we talked about. Well, and he's really watched the company grow up as well. I, it escapes me now if we actually talked about this during the interview, but I think he was at the company when it was sub $1 billion in, in assets, which is yeah. unbelievable because, of course, now we're north of 110. I actually looked it up. So one of our recent hires was the... Was 3,300, so 3,300 person we've hired. Now, we, don't have, we have only have 1,500 employees, but the 3,300 person to ever work for First National. I think Daryl was in the 60th, like the 60th person ever to be hired by First National. So you think about that. We're now closing on 4,000 people that at some point or another on their resume has First National there. And he was in the first 100 people ever to work for the company. So literally been there from the beginning. Yeah, you, for sure you would have known everybody's name back then. And, uh, you know, I'll admit right now, there's huge parts of the company who was, uh, who I could not pick up a police lineup. It's just too many people, too many floors and just the nature of it. One of the things that he talked about, what I, that I found really interesting and, and you and I just, we're just, before we went live on this, we just talked about, it. I'd never heard it before, but the ability for REITs to acquire assets without traditional debt and just, or without traditional sort of cash, but issuing shares was a novel thing for me. I'd never heard that before. No, it's an interesting, uh, interesting tax structure and he's an interesting way of structuring deals for REITs. Daryl's got a number of REIT clients. I'm sure he's encountered it a bunch. I'll admit that I, I've not encountered that, but it's, uh, it was super interesting to hear that there's you know, yet another way to uh, structure a deal. Yeah, I mean, just the whole, the whole concept that REITs just have different advantages, but Private institutions also have different advantages. I mean, one of the one of the concepts that he kind of tiptoed around is that well, REITs, yeah, do have different ways that they can structure deals that have sort of tax benefits. They also have like a different kind of fiduciary duty to shareholders and asset increases and valuations. Whereas, sort of, you know, private owners don't necessarily have to have that same short-term quarterly financial statement release pressure. They can look at things a little bit differently. So, I was trying to feel like, well, which one's better? But as we were kind of going through the conversation, it sounds like they both have their attributes. So like if you're a private institution thinking about going public, there's probably benefits. If you're a public institution thinking about privatizing, there's probably benefits. Like I'm not sure it necessarily, you know, there's advantages one way or the other. Yeah. And even over the course of a, you know, a several year time frame due to market conditions, the the privates might be persevering and acquiring more than the REITs and then market shift again, cost of capital goes down and all of a sudden the REITs are, you know, scooping up most of the deals. Probably even if you did pick a horse in that race, it, the sands could shift underneath you within a couple of years and you wish you had a, had a different structure. There's no, it's no perfect way, but, uh, you know, private REITs are all making money, so they're doing something right. You know, the other thing we, we touched on was just the Ottawa market and how that is such a staple or a stable, I should say, uh, environment where you've got sort of a, a, a nice diversified employment structure, of course, with government and tech being major there. It's a nice city, right, with the canal running through. There's a nice downtown, multiple universities. 
And it's just kind of like slow and steady, right? Like Ottawa, I don't think has these big, huge ups and downs. It, it just it kind of continues to kind of pluck away, but a great, great investment thesis. If you're looking for alternatives outside of, you know, Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver. Yeah. And that's exactly what Ottawa is selling is just uh, safety of capital. It never has those big upswings, but the downturns is always, always much more stable. People love it for that reason. I think more recently, you've seen some cap recompression and a little more, you know, Toronto or Vancouver-esque activity, but it still has that core of, uh, of stability in it. And I, I've been able to enjoy Ottawa through Daryl because he's done just a phenomenal amount of financing there. We've stood in, you know, the 15th story of whatever building while we're waiting to go into a meeting and we're look out the window and he can just start pointing like building after building after building that he's, that he's financed. And, you know, and they, I'm sure everybody has these people in their lives. I and mean, you know, somebody knows the market inside and out and you walk around and they'll go, oh yeah, yeah George used to own that building, but uh, sold it to Danny two years ago, but he only did it because he's trying to buy that building over there. You know, just knows every single story behind the otherwise, you know, faceless concrete. So it's always fun to go through a city with anybody who's got that kind of knowledge for a local market. And Daryl does have that for Ottawa very handily. Well, you, and he probably won't want me to bring this up, but, and you've told me this story where like, he's got himself so infiltrated in that community. And it's a very small, particularly in the market, apartment market space, right? Where like he really does, he just, he's got relationships, friendship with all sorts of people that are in that in- environment. I was just a testament to Daryl and who he is, right? Like, again, we're going back and kind of just gushing on Daryl now, but or crushing on Daryl now. But I mean, he's just, he's created these relationships because he's just so humble and easy and likable. And he's, uh, but you're right. Like he walks into the Ottawa real estate forum and it's just like, there's just a group around Daryl. People just want to hang out with him. Like it's, 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 it's I, I always joke that he's your mentor, but it is as a salesperson, right? Adam, like that's the kind of, you know, you want to be that. Like there's no commission breath as sort of salespeople always try to avoid, right? Uh, coming off of Daryl, that's for sure. All right, Aaron, I think we've covered this episode <laughs> nicely. We've said a lot of nice things about Daryl. No, it was fun though. I thought that was a really great experience to, you know, to talk to somebody you know really well in this uh, format. It was very cool for me. So I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah, me too. All right, everybody. See you next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.